Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast, brought to you by the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Svi Hirschfield, and I'm excited to be here with you each week for a thoughtful and engaging discussion about the weekly Torah portion. Each episode, I'll be joined by a wonderful faculty member from Pardes to dive deep into the text, exploring its relevance and insights for our lives today. We will aspire to be creative, personal, and a little brave as we leave no stone unturned, seeking to bring out meaning and significance from each Parsha. And here's a request from us. If you enjoy our conversations, please take a moment to leave a five-star review for the podcast. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important discussions. So whether you're a seasoned Torah scholar or a curious beginner, we invite you to join us on this journey of learning and discovery. With that, let's dive in and explore this week's Parsha together. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. If this is your first time, of course, welcome. And if you're joining us again, that's wonderful. Welcome back. We are on Parshat Shlach, and I am very excited to have a friend, teacher, colleague, Yiska Smith, who is going to join us and share her Torah about this wonderful and confusing, challenging Parsha. Welcome, Yiska. Wow, Tzvi, thank you. And to everyone, to all the listeners, Baruchot HaBa'ot, Baruchim HaBa'im, welcome. This is exciting. I love this parsha. It's the summer. It's the summer. That's right. So we're counting on you actually reading this parsha and not just spending all your time at the beach, there right? That's correct. I... Okay, so let's uh, jump in. Parsha Shlach, a difficult parsha for me personally, right? There's a sense of tremendous failure that's going to happen here, right? The Jewish people are poised to enter the land, fulfill the destiny, the promise to the forefathers, come into the land, build the society they're supposed to build. We're at the final stages. We send the leaders of the people to scout out the land. You know, I think Moshe's convinced they're going to come back with a wonderful report. Everyone's going to be inspired. Everyone's going to be ready. And instead... The wheels come off the bus. Does it make you sad? It makes me very sad because the opportunity was right there. And in fact, the spies did come back with a good report. And then that fateful word, Ephes, but. <laughs> that terrible but. There are a lot of puns we could make about the trouble we get into with that word. But, as I just said, we're going to put that aside. So, of course, the question that I think nags at us and nags at the Mefarshim as well is how does this happen? How do we reach a point where the spies reach this conclusion that the Jewish people cannot conquer the land and take the land? This is the generation that went out of Egypt. This is a generation that saw the plagues in Egypt. This is a generation that stood at Mount Sinai. This is a generation that has Moshe and Aaron at the front of the people. And of course, the painful, difficult question, how is it possible that this happens? What is the source of the problem that leads at least 10 out of 12 to come back and say, we can't do it? You know, Tzvi, I'm really glad that you just mentioned 10 out of 12 and not 12 out of 12, because the question equally that we need to answer, what was different, what was unique about Kalev and Yehoshua that they pushed back, especially Kalev, pushed back on the 10 other spies. So you're saying it's related. If we can figure out what the positive two had, we can understand what the other 10 were missing. Exactly. And I want to emphasize when we say the spies, 
These were not just spies. These were leaders of their tribes. The question that really just beckons us to address, how could leaders who witnessed everything that you just mentioned and reminded us of, okay, a follower, a straggler, all right, a little bit of doubt, but these were the leaders. What happened? So we're familiar with those answers. There's some answers like Rambam, they were just a slave generation and they couldn't get there. Or you've got some very nice mystical reasons. They loved the desert and the Mishkan. They didn't want to let that go. But all of those answers seem to push back against a pshat that suggests that there's something missing. Yep, there is something missing. I'd like to address that if I may now. Please. What was missing... And Dafka, because specifically because they had witnessed all these miracles, what they were lacking that would be necessary when we would come into Eretz Yisrael is like leaving the program, leaving Yeshiva, leaving Pardes and going back to wherever one is going to go back to. What do we do now? And they didn't have a misgeret. They didn't have a framework. What they were lacking was bitachon atzmi, self-confidence, self-trust. Okay, you're going to have to elaborate on that. The lacking is not a faith in God. The lacking is not a devotion to the land of Israel. They're not questioning the whole mission. You're saying their lacking was the way they viewed themselves. That's right. And how did they view themselves as people that were recently freed from slavery? They were accustomed to having someone leading them, telling them what to do. And Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, followed that role eloquently. There was not a lot of room for free thinking, creative thinking, pushback. And this is what is necessary to cultivate something very important to who we are as a human being, clearly as Jews. Rav Raz Hartman, a contemporary teacher of mine here in Yerushalayim, he even says, I'm quoting him now, this is a profound insight that he has as a very devoted Hasidic Jew here in Israel. There is something deep-rooted It's a fundamental matter that without it, one's life journey in general is not able to succeed. And he believes in an astonishing way. Among many of us, this is tremendously lacking. In a strange way, most of the world does not urge the development of this essential principle, not in one's education, not among one's community, and not in one's life self-confidence, being able to cultivate trusting in oneself. Now, he does move through this teaching and emphasize that what that means is, what part of me am I trusting? I'm trusting the part of me where I sense the divine presence. Wait, so we have to unpack that a little bit. Let's, Let's do that. On the one hand, you're saying that the people did not believe in themselves, which I guess you're saying is translating they did not believe in their own ability to achieve the mission that was put in front of them, and therefore they couldn't move forward. But it seems to me you're saying something else also, which I also want to pursue, that a trust in oneself is in itself a form of emunah, of faith in God. This is exactly why Kalev responded. Let's just remember for a moment, what was their problem? What was their objection? They came back and praised the land. And then, like I mentioned earlier, the but. What was the but? We'll never be able to do this. They're giants. They're big. Their cities are fortified. And I love that phrase, we are small in their eyes. They didn't ask them. They didn't go to them and say, hey, do I look small to you? They assumed they projected their own sense of themselves. That's right. On the other people. You know, 
Rabbi Dr. Avraham Tversky, may his memory be for a blessing, points out in his book, Let Us Make Man, Cultivating Self-Esteem Through Torah Values. He points to this, the danger of when one is suffering from a low self-esteem, we project that onto how other people see us. We envision, we imagine. So to your point, they already thought they were as grasshoppers. And then according to Rashi, they were already reducing themselves to how the giants saw them as ants. Why do you think they were in that place? Because there's this other argument that could say, look at all that God has done for me. I must be a person of great worth to deserve all this. But that's not how they react. No, that's not. And also, that's not how Kalev pushed back on them. He didn't try to do the guilt trip. He didn't try to say, where is your gratitude? God has brought you this far, and now you're going to, like, fail? You think he brought us here just to fail? One pasuk, one verse is how he replied to all their logical objections. I mean, from a military strategy point of view, they were right. This is a setup to lose. But this is what Kalev said. We will go up. We will surely go up, ascend to the land, and we will inherit the land. Why? For one simple reason. Because we can. Because God said we can. So why then, boy, I'm convinced, I'm ready to follow Kalev, why the other spies and why do you think the people were in a place where they didn't believe that they could? For me to answer that, I would have to do something that I caution people in my mentoring practice never to do. Well, it's a pirke avod. <laughs> Don't judge someone else's behavior till you're in their makom because it's the makom that causes them to make that judgment, to make that mistake. Honestly, Sri, I don't know what I would have done. I really don't. But I do believe that they were petrified. They saw a land. How are we going to do this? And their fear overtook their emuna. With Kalev, he also, I'm sure, I would believe from what I know about human personality, he also probably had a little, I hope we can do this. We can do. That's why he uses the word, we can do this. But you implied earlier, I want to come back to something you said, that in a way is this interesting paradox. The people were led, things were done for them, that in a sense, maybe I'm, I'm reading you too radically, that God is in a paradox. The more he does for this people, the more he does miracles, and the more leadership he provides, and more Moshe's that bring them along, that very process undermines their belief that they themselves can do it. Where do we see that? Recently, we celebrated Shavuot. We know at that point, the tablets were given to Moshe, already engraved. He did nothing. All he had to do was show up. The second set of tablets, when he went up and down, up and down, and up the third time on Rosh Chodesh Elul, this time God said, you bring the tablets. This is going to be a partnership. I'll do the engraving, but you're going to schlep. You're going to exert the effort in this relationship. This is a partnership. Not 50-50, but a partnership. And that's why the second set never broke. Because we were invested. Beautiful. So God's in a bind here, like many parents are, right? The more you do for your child, you run the risk of making them believe they can't do it for themselves. Even though as a loving parent, you want to do everything for your child. You could be making that mistake. 
I don't want to start reflecting on my own parenting right now, especially if my <laughs> wife is listening to this podcast. But let's come back to something that you said, that this self-confidence is in fact a type of belief in Hashem. It's a type of emunah. So what do you mean by that? Because normally I think people think I believe in myself or I believe in God, right? I'm thinking of the standard secular Zionist paradigm. It's either we're going to do it or God's going to do it. God's not going to do it. Therefore, it's up to us, this either-or. And here you come along and say, actually, it's not an either-or, but belief in oneself is, in fact, an expression of belief in God. This is where I can share the pull that Hasidut, that the spiritual teachings have had on my life in the past 50 years. Folks, take my word for it. Yiska's <laughs> eyes lit up just now. <laughs> Genuine excitement here in the Nomi studio. Go ahead. Okay, so here we go. What did the Baal Shem come to teach us? The Baal Shem Tov who began what we call Hasidism. Uh, now it's moved into Neo-Hasidism. What he taught us, though, in the latter part of the 18th century in Ukraine that there's two ways of us as the human being experiencing God. From God's point of view, it's all the same. But from our point of view, because we like to categorize, we like to slice and dice and try to control and figure it out. So there's one aspect of God that is God the creator. God created everything. This is the transcendental aspect of God. It even says in the Zohar, no matter how much I try to chase after it, I'll never catch up to it. I'm finite. This is infinite. That's the God that people are responding to when either it's a choice believing in God or believing in me. However, there's another aspect. There's another way we experience the very same infinite creator, and that is the divine within me, the Shekhinah, the divine presence. Rather than a transcendental experience, it's an experience of imminence. It's visceral. It's I can actually sense it. That is the God that lies within me, that dwells within me through my own neshama. We know that when Hashem is the creator, blew into Adam and Chava, the very life, the word for breathing and the word for soul, they're the same. Nishima, nishama. So there's something inside of me that is infinite in my finite body, which is the divine paradox. And you're saying if I can touch that sense of infinite, that you're saying translates into a tremendous sense of self-confidence and self-worth. Yeah, because now I have something to lean on. That's why Kalev said, not only are we able, we are surely able to do this. Not because... I just want to move to Israel. I'm going to make it happen. But because God, the God inside of me, not out there, but within me, I feel it. I sense this directive to go, search out the land, come back, bring the report. So now the whole Hever can come in. Again, I want to come back to this paradox that the God, the transcendent infinite God, by its very nature, makes me feel small. And so therefore, when the people say we feel small, if I follow your reading, they have been so plugged in to the transcendent, overpowering God. Of course they feel small. That's been at the heart of their religious experience. And however it happened, they did not cultivate enough of that sense of the divine within exactly. to also feel exactly. big. That's the cold Dhamma that we see with Elijah the prophet. Sensing God's presence, not through all the drama outside, all these different weather conditions, the winds and the fires and the rumblings. But then there was the cold, the mamandaka. And that's what I teach at Pardes. I teach practice how to be aware of this inner, still small voice. 
That's what Kalev heard. And that inner voice, is that sort of giving license to every part of me, or do you feel like it's discerning? It's pointing to some things, pushing back at others. How do you feel that that, that inner godliness or nefesh eloki relates to sort of my personality in general? We've been blessed with a very big blessing, which can also be not a very big blessing, depending what we do with it. It's called free will. So we have different voices inside that talk to us, different inclinations. We even call it in Jewish tradition one way. There's the good inclination. There's the evil inclination. Chasidut, the spiritual mystics, explain the Yetzah HaTov, the good inclination, as the voice inside, which is the Kaldum Mamadaka, that suggests how to nurture and how to become more close in this relationship with the divine. In my own unique way. In your own unique way. The other voice, though, is the voice of disconnect, where I, it's not about either I or you, it's either me or we. So the voice inside that we call the good inclination suggests to Yiska, will suggest to Tzvi, I love you. I love you for being who you are, but it's not all about you. It's not all about me. It's about we. How can we be in the relationship rather than just I in the relationship. So it's self-confidence. It's not self-absorption. Exactly. And that's why Rav Raz, who I mentioned earlier, he says that the companion that makes this a spiritual practice, the companion to bitachon atzmi, self-confidence, is humility. Without humility, without this emunah in something greater than me in me, then I'm just left to my ego. So it's my own internal paradox. I have a piece of God in me, but really it's a piece that belongs to this much larger Exactly, exactly. So I'm right there on the edge of self-worship, and I have to be very careful how I both believe in my own godliness but don't see myself as God. It's a beautiful dance. It's like walking on a tightrope. You know, if you watch how it walks on a tightrope, there's this balance back and forth. Always there's this fluidity back and forth. I'm always aware, if I choose to be, if I cultivate this awareness, that I can fall off or I could stay on. So I want to ask you a tough question. What happens when I sense profound conflict? I'm asking you as someone deeply rooted in Jewish tradition, and I know you've thought about this question a million times. What do you do when the voice of the transcendent commanding Torah from Sinai voice is in conflict with the divine voice from within? Two different voices from the same source, is that what you're saying? I'm wondering your internal Yetzer HaTov, to the best of your ability as you understand it, suggests one path, and the traditional Torah, Halacha, commanding, mitzvah, mitzvah, right, commander and commandment, is saying something else. And I'm wondering, what do you do in that moment, and how do you understand the tension there? So I will answer that from my own experience. That's what we have to share is each other's experiences. This is not the law laying down that I received from Shemayim, but this is what's worked for me over a lot of effort, a lot of angst, a lot of inner tension, and also emunah, belief. That's what Kalev had was belief. Let me explain. 
There was this wonderful Hasidic Rebbe, Reb Simcha Bunim. He lived from 1766 to 1827. Reb Simcha Bunim said, what is the litmus test? He didn't use the word litmus test. That's my word. What is the litmus test that you can judge your own behavior, your own attitude, your own words by if it's really your authentic self? Now, he's assuming his axiom, his given, is that your true self is your soul not your ego. The ego is an energy that helps us survive as a species. I have to eat, I have to sleep, procreation, rest, staying warm in the winter, staying cool in the summer. This is important, but this is not my essence. My essential being is my soul. He writes in his book, actually it was written by Mikhail Rosen, may he rest in peace. It was published quite recently, 2008, by Urim Publications, The Quest for Authenticity, The Thoughts of Rebsim Chabunim. I can sum up the whole 350 plus pages by saying, when I am honoring what I think is my authentic sense, whether it's within the Torah or not the Torah, what will tell me what's my sign that maybe it's inappropriate or it's just self-delusional or even worse, it's egocentric. Do I see more of God in other people or less? That for Reb Simcha because he recognized people have egos. I just don't feel like fasting on Yom Kippur. I'm hungry. God made me hungry. It's God's fault. So I'm going to eat because God created me with hunger. Now, when I do that, what do I see in me and other people? Do I see more of the divine presence or less? This was a major move for me. This was such a help, such a real resource for me to be able to discriminate, to disseminate, to really hold whatever it is in front of me and say, well, picture, do a visualization. If I do this, will that cause me to feel closer to God or not? You know, there are many people, they're so busy thinking they're doing what's right, they don't see God even in themselves. And then there are people who live for this relationship. And maybe it's not so much about being performance-oriented, but about an awareness of cultivating this relationship. So would you be okay if I frame that as saying that as Jews, it's important that we be knowledgeable of tradition and rooted in tradition and feel the command of tradition. At the same time, we have to acknowledge there are going to be moments where the commanding voice of tradition and the commanding inner voice are going to be at odds with each other. And at that moment, you're saying, I have to take a really strong, hard look and figure out where's the inner voice coming from. And when I visualize both pathways, where do I think I'm going to end up? You could teach this to one of my classes. Exactly that. Hold the moment. Don't react. Don't judge. Actually, I teach to my students and my clients. See that as, as a teaching moment. See that friction, that tension as a teacher. Maybe I need to learn more. Maybe I need to pray more. Maybe I need to do nothing and just pause and learn from that tension. That's a tool of teaching. I feel compelled to share one other dimension to this. I personally have come to see a difference with as much respect as I can muster up and with every humility that I'm trying to always cultivate. There is a difference between the mitzvot in the Torah and how human beings have interpreted them. I have so much respect for rabbis. I mean, I'm surrounded by rabbis. I live, I'm informed by rabbinical interpretations, but to me, they are not God. 
Only the prophets could say, God said this. They're interpreting with their devotion, lishma, for the sake of us being faithful and remaining faithful to God. And at times, I disagree with them. I've given myself permission in my name of being authentic and trying to cultivate authenticity. I've had to look at a certain rabbinical response and say, no, in that time and place, maybe. Or maybe in this time and place, maybe for some. In this time and place, not for me. I would rephrase. It's not that you're disagreeing. You're saying the godliness within you is pushing back against that. Yes. You hear that, listeners? That's exactly. Thank you. And finding that clarity, though. Finding that clarity. Finding that clarity. So you want to know my real problem now? My real problem? What's your real problem? My real problem is... I don't know how we can educate towards making another few million yiskas. I'll be very candid with you. The process that you've described, the combination of knowledge and background and immersion and commitment, along with the courage and integrity, are you saying this is how all modern Jews are supposed to live? And if so, how do you imagine getting them there? This is so hard. Yes, it is hard. I lead meditations, as you know, contemplative practices. And there's a word among the Anglo meditation Jewish world, also non-Jewish world, is called the practice. In Hebrew, though, it's not the word the practice. In Hebrew, it's avodah ruchanit. It's spiritual work. This is work. This is like a farmer planting seeds and then praying for rain. (laughs) I can't do this alone, but I can roll up my sleeves and dedicate to at least the part I can do and then pray that God will lead me to where I'm supposed to go. But this does require work. And actually, I'd like to share one teaching from my Rebbe, if I could have the chutzpah to say my Rebbe, the Piyasesna Rebbe, the Eish Kodesh, who said, if you're having trouble trusting this part of you, he loves to employ visualizations, which actually goes back to the 13th century with the Abu Lafia, when, of course, he met a lot of pushback when he suggested his Demyonot, Le Damien, Le Tsayer, and the PSS in Warsaw before the Holocaust, very much ascribed to this and taught it. He said in the book Salve if you're really having trouble with this, and you probably will if you're doing it, It's not a one-time, you know, two tablespoons of this, one teaspoon of that, shake it up, wait three minutes, and you'll be self-confident. For me, this is a lifetime journey. This is a lifetime avodah ruchanit. It's so worth it, though, because I feel cleansed. I feel every time I move ahead this way, I'm going into a mikvah. It's purification. He said, if you're having trouble with this, first of all, pause. One of his main, main philosophies or theologies or beliefs is, We react way too much. We need to respond, not react. One way of responding is to pause. We pause, and then we close our eyes and imagine, what would it be like if I was self-confident? What would that feel like? Instead of playing back the same old, same old story that I lack this confidence, how do I hear God within me? How do I touch God within me? Who am I anyway? I'm no good, I'm making mistakes. Well, what would it be like if you did? And visualize that. That's your dream. Rav Cook says you have to have, everyone has to have chalamot gedolim, big dreams. This was a dream for me. It's a dream for many people to have one moment of reality, of really touching the God within me. It's worth all the dedication and effort. Wow. Well, you heard that here first, folks. It's a lot of hard work. 
I guess that makes what's happening in the desert to the Jewish people a lot more understandable. These weren't crazy failures. These were, in a way, the expected... Yes. Kalev was the exception, which is why the Pasuk says later he had a Ruchacharet. He's the one who had a different spirit. He was the one who was not status quo. So we have been struggling with this collectively, individually, for a few thousand years already. I guess on this level, I both feel better about the spy story after talking to you, but also overwhelmingly challenged that the challenges that they're facing are still alive and well, still pushing on me, still pushing on us. And I guess the most I can do is take heart from what you're saying, that there are moments of genuine transcendence and connection, and those have to sustain us as we dig back into the harder work all the time of trying to enter Eretz Yisrael, heart, soul, mind, and body all together. That's right. That's right. I'd like to add one other mentioning about Kalev, who had this unique spirit. The word Kalev is Kalev. He led a heart-driven life, not an intellectually driven life. Today, I believe because of the Western influence, maybe it's even Hellenism always resurfacing, we've come to worship our intellect. The intellect was given to us by God. This is at least what the mystics in the Kabbalah believe, that the seichel, the intellect, was given to serve the heart. There's even a quote, and forgive me, listeners, I forgot the source of this. The mind is a wonderful servant and a terrible master. A heart-driven life is where emunah grows, where emunah flourishes. Kalev lived a life, kalev, like the heart-driven life. He's also, and many people maybe not even know this, or if they do, they forget it. Was he from? He was a leader of a tribe, Yehuda. Who is Yehuda? First of all, we're all called after the tribe of Yehudim. Not only did he cultivate gratitude, but through him is the progenitor of the whole redemption of Mashiach, of King David, of Shlomo HaMelech of the actual Messiah. We have a Kalev inside of us. We have a spark of the capacity to redeem ourselves in the spirit, in the Ruach of the Mashiach, of this redeeming me from self-centeredness, from ego. Loneliness, isolation. The ills we're suffering from today, alienation, low self-esteem, loneliness, all come from this imbalance with that part of me, between the part of me that is just fighting to survive and the part of me that wants to thrive. And as long as we keep pursuing self-esteem through our accomplishments and the praise of others, we're on a treadmill and we can't get there. We can't get there. The Jewish people could be praised by Moshe, praised by God, but until they believe in their own value, they don't see themselves as only Ketanim, as only little, they're not going to cross over. Well, folks, I have learned a lot. I feel profoundly challenged. I can tell you the best part is if you talk about Yisk with this stuff in person and not on a podcast, you will see when she looks at you, she believes you can do it. I don't believe I can do it, but she believes I can do it. So that's actually strengthening my heart. There you uh, go. Like Kalev. I really do believe you can do uh, this. You week. see, I told you. <laughs> Yiska really believes. A lot of emuna. So I want to thank you very, very much. What a pleasure to learn from you and hear your challenging and inspiring ideas. 
And it was great having you. Thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. And this is your third time in Jewish law. That's a chazaka, which means you are now permanently obligated to do this podcast. So on that note, on behalf of Yiska and myself and Zev, who's in the control room, I think we can call it, and the Pardes Institute, we wish all of you a Shabbat Shalom. And please tune in again as we explore the messages and our personal connection to the Parsha. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat shalom. Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast, recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.